and welcome back to another edition of the Alonzo Event. We're your hosts, I'm Aaron. And I'm Sam. And we are coming to you today in a week that was filled with baseball action. Um, we have a little bit to talk about, about our NFL picks from last week. And then, as promised, we are going to finish up the show with some early reactions to the NBA and obviously breaking some very big news about James Harden. If you haven't heard the news yet, we are honored that you will be hearing it here first on the Alonzo Bet a mere two days after it first broke. Um, but I, I would be I would be absolutely shocked if a listener of our podcast had not heard the James Harden news yet. It would also be a surprise to me, but once again, if you are, then uh, we really appreciate you hearing it here first. And actually, you've won a prize. Reach out to us uh, on Twitter at the Alonzo Bet or our email, thealonzobet at gmail.com. But with that, Sam, we're going to roll right into baseball because the most exciting news of the year, perhaps, for a young man such as yourself happened this week uh, in baseball. And of course, it happened to the New York Mets. So I wanted to make you sweat for this because I know you're just chomping at the bit to get out and talk about <laughs> this. I wanted to make you sweat it out, but at the end of the day, it didn't feel right. So please let loose on what's happening in Queens right now. The New York Mets have swung the biggest blockbuster of the free agent. Well, it wasn't a free agency trade, but of the off season in major league baseball, they have traded for one of the 10, 15 best players in baseball in Francisco Lindor. They got a hell of a throw into that trade in Carlos Carrasco. Uh, and they gave up Ahmed Rosario, Andres Jimenez, and two prospects, Josh Wolf and Isaiah Green, their last two second round picks. Um, I think there's not a Met fan alive who was not ecstatic to see this trade go through. They got a verifiable franchise player, star, superstar in Major League Baseball in Francisco Lindor. They got the guy who I think now, until Syndergaard is back from his injury, is you could argue the second best pitcher on their starting staff. And they gave up guys who have certainly been pieces that the Mets have hoped they could build around in the future, but are not, you know, in Ahmad Rosario, we have a guy who has really failed to live up to expectations. In Andres Jimenez, we have a guy who had, you know, a decent rookie season, showed some promise, but you just don't see him as a guy with nearly the ceiling of a Francisco Lindor. And they gave up two prospects who, while our high upside prospects are not prospects who are like at the top of their at the top of their organizational structure, they're sort of guys who you might view as like the ninth, 10th best prospects in their system. So they did this all while keeping the best prospects in their system. I, am I right to, to be as shocked as I am that the Mets were able to pull this off to just basically have like nothing upsets me about it? Like, am I right to be as happy as I am? Well, I think you're, I think you're right to be as happy as you are because even if, we assume that this trade is long-term a bit damaging to the Mets organization, which I, that's actually not my opinion, but let's just assume it for, for the sake of this argument. I still think it's the right thing for them to do because the Mets have had almost enough, a lot over the last, you know, 19 years or so. Right. 
And what's been missing in all of those pushes are big acquisitions. So big acquisitions at the deadline, big impactful acquisitions in the offseason because they've certainly spent some money in the past, but on really foolish things. And here, what you have is, as you say, Francisco Lindor is truly an easy top 15 player in baseball, probably a top 10 player in baseball. And he is a guy who there are no concerns about him in the clubhouse. There's no concerns about work ethic. There's no concerns about any of the externalities that might make a superstar like this expendable in the eyes of Cleveland. And so basically they're getting a guy whose only downside is that he's on an expiring contract, but a guy that immediately makes them contenders, if not borderline favorites for the NL East this season. Now, of course it does depend on their pitching and that's where Carlos Carrasco comes in. This is a bit of a flyer for the Mets. So something that, you know, I I think you did gloss over a bit because there's no question that when Carlos Carrasco is at his best. He's a tremendous pitcher, top 20 in baseball, no question. But Carlos Carrasco hasn't been at his best for quite some time. Um, and most of that's due to injury. Like no one's thinking, oh, maybe he fell off. But after back-to-back five-plus war seasons in 2017 and 2018, which followed a 4.8 war season in 2015, just to give you an idea of how good he really can be, he went on to throw combined 148 innings over the next two seasons. So he did come back and throw a good share of his necessary innings in 2020. Um, But, you know, there's been arm issues there. He of course was diagnosed and beat cancer and came back to play, which is a tremendous story. Um, But I I don't think you can just pencil him in for 180 strong innings this season. Uh, What you can pencil him in for is quality when he gets on the hill. So When you're talking about filling out your rotation, even if he does end up as like a four because he's not throwing a ton of innings, like, yeah, you guys still want that over Steven Matz, who was your four last year, right? So like, this is a huge improvement for them, even outside of Lindor. And in terms of what they gave up, I think the counter argument to what you're saying, just to try and even give a semblance of a balanced view to this blockbuster, is that there's a lot of value in Rosario and Andres Jimenez, who are both, you know, um, young guys who are major league players right now, um, and who are both uh, like middle infielders, which is high value positions. And I think that compared to some prospects, there is a lot of value there. The problem is for the Indians, A, how do you do this trade and still not get an outfielder? How do you give away your organization's best player in years and years, even on an expiring contract and not fill your single greatest position of need, even with a prospect like they easily could have taken an outfield prospect from the Mets, but they chose pitchers. Like Isaiah green is Isaiah green is an outfield. Oh, he is. He is. I'm I'm sorry. Josh Wolf is a pitcher though, right? Josh Wolf is a pitcher, but of course, Isaiah green is likely, you know, five years from being there. He's four years at least from being there. So, like, while I do understand what the Indians thought they saw in this trade, I think they probably could have gotten more value elsewhere. I think Ahmed Rosario, although he had been improving, kind of showed us what type of player he was. Like, he's getting a max out. Uh, He may have, like, a four or five war season sometime, but he's going to be a consistent, like, two and a half, three war player with, like, average defense, and he's going to 
be on and off at the dish. Like we've seen it. We've seen enough plate appearances from him in my mind. Andres Jimenez, of course, a little bit higher upside. He's younger. Uh, we really saw some good flashes on both sides of the plate last year. But, you know, it's not like he had tremendous success outside of rookie ball in the minors. So there's some questions there. All in all, I love it for the Mets. I mean, and then they go out and they take a flyer on a guy like Jorge Martinez. I love what they are doing. They're looking at their division. They're saying there's some really good teams here. The Nats are trying to stack a lineup together. and We already know they have the pitching. The Braves have shown themselves to be a very, very good team. The Phillies are going to stick around. The Marlins are not going to stick around this year. We, we've said it a million times. I'm going to continue saying it. The Marlins are not real contenders in that division. Neither are the Phillies really now, though. Um, the Mets really make it difficult for the Phillies who, again, they have a good lineup. If they re-sign JT Real Muto, maybe it's a slightly different story, but it's one thing to think about like the Mets, Phillies, Nats, and Braves, like all trying to play for the division and the wild card. When you think about the interdivisional games and the relative parity between those three teams before these trades. Now, I think it's Marlins, Nats, Phillies with the Nats a little higher and then Mets Braves is basically a toss up to me at this point. Yeah, I think the the Mets and Braves are very close at this current moment. I think uh, any move in either direction could swing it. I don't think the Mets are necessarily done. They could I, they could still be in on Springer. Uh, and yeah, I mean, if they're the Braves, on Springer, they become clear favorites in that division, right? How can you argue? Against yeah. It? Um. So so there are a couple a couple points I want to make. The first is that, and I'm not the first person to realize that, is that this has very clear analogs to the Mookie Betts trade. We're talking about a guy who was, uh, you know, I mean, Mookie Betts is better than Francisco Lindor, but we're talking about one of the best players in baseball with one year left on the contract. We're talking about a team that is frankly too cheap to want to pay for their next contract. We're talking about a guy who is going to hit free agency at a young age. They, I think they're both 27 at the time of the trade. So we're not talking about guys who are going to get these contracts in their thirties. They're in their prime. And we're talking about teams with big pockets in the Dodgers. And now the Steve Cohen led Mets who are basically saying, Hey, we want one of the best players in baseball on our team and got honestly got these players for surprisingly small price. Now, there's a, there's an extra analog, which is that in both these in both these deals, this this team crying poor, whether it was the Indians or Red Sox, threw in the deal of a very good veteran pitcher right. because they just didn't want to pay their contract. In the Mookie Betts trade, it was David Price. In this trade, it's it's Carlos Carrasco. And you know, on, on the point of Carrasco, I, I I do want to respond to your point, which is that I I think you're you know maybe being a bit tough on him as a question mark in that. Yeah, the 2019 season, he was diagnosed with leukemia. He was pitching really bad before his diagnosis, but I think you can chalk that up to like he was pitching with leukemia. I told you, I'm not worried then, about his performance. When he gets on the mound, I'm sure he's going to give you quality. I just don't know how many innings he's going to throw. That, yeah, that's fair. Uh, and, and I want to make one more point about, about Carrasco, but let me let me finish this, this point first. Is that, do like... Do you even think the Indians like beat the Red Sox package, which at the time was like largely maligned? I mean, the Red Sox got Verdugo, who I think is a better piece than either Rosario or Jimenez. I think maybe it's not even getting Rosario. 
Yeah, I think getting Rosario and Jimenez, maybe, maybe you're close. saying, yeah, yeah. what's the chance that one of these guys is a big piece for us? And I think Jeter Downs was viewed like he was a top 100 prospect. Wolf and Green, I mean, maybe the Cleveland likes these guys and maybe they turn into something, but they are not top 100 prospects in baseball. No, I, I 100% it's not as good as the package that the um, Red Sox got. But also, I actually think it's the exact same package. So if you scale them for the difference in quality, because they're very similar packages, like you put Jimenez and Rosario together and like maybe you're approaching the projected value of um, of Verdugo and uh, Green and Wolf are, are not as big of prospects as Jeter Downs, but like they, they both are high value prospects and they, you know, they're better than anybody else that the Dodgers gave up. Mookie Betts is marginally better than Francisco Lindor and deserved a marginally yeah, better package. There's no question that, that Mookie Betts is, is the better, more proven player. So the reason I, I wanted to make that analogy is that the Dodgers <laughs> traded for this one year of Mookie Betts and they signed him to an extension. Mookie Betts is now going to be in Los Angeles unless he's traded for basically the rest of his career, 12 years, 365 million. Uh, they saw, let's go get this guy and make him a part of our franchise forever. Cause he's one of the best players in baseball. Do you think the same thing is going to happen with the Mets and Francisco Lindor? Do you think an extension gets done? Uh, so what do you see that extension being? So I definitely think it's a possibility. I, I see a lot of similarities also in the people that Lindor and Mookie Betts are like Mookie, obviously a little bit more stern than Lindor, who is just, this is a side point, but Lindor is just one of the best personalities in baseball. And the opportunity for him to get to go play in a big market like New York is good for the game of baseball. No question, because he is the type of Fernando Tatis Jr., Cody Bellinger, Bryce Harper, like level of mass appeal player that is really good for baseball. So overall, I'm very happy for Lindor and I'm very happy for baseball. That also contributes to why I believe it's a definitely a possibility they re-sign him. The one differentiator that, you know, makes me a little unsure is Mookie had talked about wanting an extension, right? It was part of the whole deal. It's part of why he left the Red Sox or why they traded him. Um, I, I don't know publicly from Lindor. A lot of guys feel like it's their duty to take themselves to free agency. So, well, I, I thought Mookie was actually like, had been pretty stern on going to free agency from the Red Sox. And, and then, and then the Red Sox sort of said, we're not going to make a play for you in free agency. And then he felt the Dodgers was a place he liked and decided to take the contract. Maybe, maybe I'm misremembering things on that, on that path. Yeah, um, me, I, I don't remember either, but I thought that he signed, I thought he signed a raw extension. He did with the Dodgers. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Um, either way, though, I, I don't know what Lindor's deal is. So specifically about the extension, I don't know. I think the chances now, though, and this is an important point, the chances now that he ends up as a Met for the next 10 plus years are much, much higher because he's playing on the Mets right now, right? Like it's basically yeah. an audition for the Mets. If he goes and he likes being in New York and he likes the environment that the Mets have in the clubhouse and he thinks they're building something winning, which it looks like they are, he's going to stay. 
And, and, you know, in in Lindor's introductory press conference, he was asked multiple times by members of the New York media, are you going to sign the extension here? He, of course, was noncommittal, but he did basically make it seem as if, yeah, my agent's going to talk to them. I was never, he said verbatim, I was never against signing an extension in Cleveland. Right. They, you know, they just never met my price. Well, so then I think it makes it, I think it makes it very likely. Yeah. And, and the, so, so if, if the Mets signed Francisco Lindor to an extension, this is a no brainer, like incredible, incredible, incredible win for the franchise. Right. I agree. Let's, let's now consider the worst case scenario, which is the Mets only get Lindor services for one year. Then sort of how do you judge the deal? Because you did give up sort of three years of control in Ahmed Rosario, five years of control of Andres Jimenez, guys who, yeah, are obviously not Francisco Lindor, but who are good, young, con- cost-controlled pieces that, you know, you certainly don't mind having in your organization. The guys who were going to be playing shortstop up the middle for you moving forward, do you still like this deal for the Mets if it's only a year of Lindor? Um, I mean, from a baseball ops standpoint, obviously it's not – optimal but like yes i i do because they have to go for it at some point like they do have a nucleus that can handle it Cindergard isn't getting any less fragile degrom isn't getting any worse but he's not getting any younger either um and they seem to have put a bullpen together that can do something they're playing better defense than before their outfield is formidable for real um and yeah, I I like it. Like I don't care if if they only get him for one year because I don't care about them losing Rosario at all. Like it means nothing to me. I honestly think you could go and start like some guy off of like the free agent wire and if he plays good enough defense like he'll come close to Rosario's value. Um and the two prospects are the price of doing business. They didn't they didn't blow up their farm system for this. So I like it either way. Um, and I'll note that the top prospect in their system, Ronnie Mauricio, is a shortstop. So that's a great point as well. You know, they they do have this. I mean, obviously he's still young. You don't know what he's going to be, but they they're thinking that they do have a guy that could possibly replenish this position. I think that the point of of defense at shortstop is is an important one because the Mets have notoriously been one of the worst defensive teams in baseball in recent memory. And a lot of that has to do with really bad defense at shortstop. Up the middle. Rosario, the catcher position as well has been a black hole. Exactly. That. And and I think McCann's going to be a big improvement there over Wilson Ramos, of course. Um, but, you know, Rosario was terrible at defense two years ago. I think he had moved towards a little below average to average at shortstop. He was definitely improving. Jimenez, I think, has the potential to be a good defensive shortstop. He showed that and potential. Hip, and and but, get on base at a high cliff. Like, be a valuable player in the major leagues. Yeah, I mean, I don't think he's ever going to hit for very much power. I don't think he walks enough to to love him as a bat. That's uh, in terms of the combination of 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 no power and not walking. That's fair. But he has good contact skills, so that that's something to like out of Rosario. But Lindor is legit. I mean, he's one of the three best defensive. Sorry, and that's good by the way, because the Indians what they're lacking on their team is contact skills. They don't have enough little guys who, who only have contact skills and somehow still only hit 240. So I'm glad they were able to go out and get on Jesse Menez. Yeah, but like Lindor is legit one of the three best defensive shortstops in baseball. Yeah. He's 
he's, he's, he's a savant there. Yeah, he's tremendous. He's incredible. And you know who's going to love having Lindor playing shortstop? Marcus Stroman, who's one of the biggest ground ball pitchers in baseball. I forgot I about Marcus Stroman. That is actually a big yeah. difference maker. Yeah, I mean, this this is this is the Mets building a team around the talent they have, which is a difference from sort of what they've been been able to do with like sort of the cash-strapped ownership that they've had in the past, trying to fit, you know, circles and square yeah. pegs and in you know, and, whatever. And other colloquialisms that, that people say. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, the other, you know, what's the final piece the Mets need to be true contenders in terms of this point of, you know, having a team that fits, it's a defensive center fielder because as much as I love Brandon Nimmo, I might be the biggest Brandon Nimmo lover you in are the, the world. I honestly, Nimmo lover. I honestly might. He cannot play defense in center field. And neither can um, Conforto because they've tried that. Yeah. I So, you know, can the Mets go out and get a center fielder? The, I, it's going to be so key for the Mets that the DH is in the NL this year because it's not though. Well, no, it, I, in it, Ken Rosenthal, I think reported yesterday that he thinks it end, it will end up being there. Interesting. They could definitely yeah. use it so, with a guy like JD Davis or Dom Smith. Exactly. I mean, I think it's so important that they get Dom Smith in the lineup and he's not a left fielder. Uh, and, and honestly, if they can sort of switch Alonzo and, and Dom Smith at the DH in first base and then get a defensive center fielder or George Springer, you know, that would, and then that, play, that would work as well. Yeah. And then play Nimmo and Conforto in the corners. Suddenly this lineup and has McNeil basically no base. Yeah. Or, or second. And maybe you stick Suddenly with the biggest hole in the lineup is Robinson Cano. No Robinson Cano suspended all season. Well, he's still a big hole in the lineup. <laughs> yeah uh but su- suddenly you know this team basically has no holes uh they're and they look you know they're already projected as third in war for baseball in the next season behind the dodgers and padres on fan graphs if they can make one more big move they're they're really up there with like a world series contender and boy is it exciting i agree with you but sam we have uh we have droned on about this topic a bit too long if I let you keep pleasuring yourself to the Mets, the FCC is going to take <laughs> us off the airwaves. So we do have to keep going, but congratulations. It's a huge move for Queens and uh, I'm excited to see what they do this year. Let's go to some other big signings that happened. Um, the first one is arguably the best reliever of the last season or two in the MLB. Um, and that's Liam Hendricks signing with the White Sox. So Liam Hendricks, um, a guy who last year was extremely, extremely good, 178 ERA, 114 FIP, amassed a war and a half as a reliever in 24 total games. That's extremely, extremely good. The year before, he had almost four war. He had a 180 ERA and a 187 FIP. Um, so for the last two seasons, this is a guy who's been um, extremely dominant in either a closing role um, or a setup and closing role. And uh, the White Sox go out and they say, we want somebody to bolster our bullpen and we're going to pay. So they give him three years, 54 million guaranteed with a club option on a fourth year at $15 million. What do you think of this signing for the White Sox, Sam? So I, I like it a lot because as... As we're talking about the Mets, if you have a core that's really good, 
it's refreshing to build the pieces around it to compete. And Liam Hendricks, I think, is the best, or you know, I I hear the argument for second best uh, reliever in baseball right now, um, behind Devin Williams, maybe. But I'd like to see him do it one more year. Um, and you know, the Padre, uh, sorry, the White Sox are up there with now one of the best bullpens in baseball because you know Aaron Bummer is really good. Kogi Hoyer is pretty good. I think Garrett Crochet could be really good. Uh, like this is a really good bullpen and to surround that with the offensive firepower they have, the starting pitching they have, I think this solidifies them as maybe the favorites in the AL Central and a team that could that could really compete. Yeah, so from that perspective, Sam, like I think it's great that the White Sox have Liam Hendricks this year. Obviously, it's going to make them a better team. My problem is you're paying this guy. My problem is just paying relievers a ton of money for four years or three, even just three years. Like what reliever? So he's been good the last two years. We can all agree on that. But what reliever is consistently good for five or six years? Very, very few. And Liam Hendricks, especially last year was a shortened season. So uh, you know, I'm not going to take away from him and his performance because he was quite good, but I, I tells me a little bit less than a full season. I've only ever seen Liam Hendricks have one full season where he was a good reliever, well, a tremendous reliever. I mean, I guess he has two seasons of like one and a half war back in 2015 and 2016, but like he's really only had one season where he's worth that money. So, you know, I have to ask the question is he going to be able to sustain this performance? And so as usual, to try to help me answer that question, I'm going to Baseball Savant to take a look at the breakdown of some of his stuff. And what I see, Sam, is actually very promising for the White Sox. I see that his whole career, he has thrown his fastball as his primary pitch. But I see that every year since 2015, his fastball usage has increased and I also see that, ev- that in 2019, he made a big change with his fastball. Not only did his usage jump significantly from 52% to 69.3%, a very significant jump, but also he stopped throwing it down in the zone. He just literally threw almost no fastballs down in the zone, which is huge for a guy who has his pitch mix. He's fastball slider, curveball sinker, basically. And he was getting really badly hurt down in the zone with his fastball and his sinker. And he just said, I'm not going to throw those pitches down in the zone anymore. And in fact, in 2020, he eliminated his sinker altogether. And it's paid tremendous dividends for him. It has made him a very good pitcher. So while I still harbor some uncertainty about his future performance, I am ready to believe that he had a legitimate change in approach on the mound along with an uptick in velocity, which we don't even need to go into, but his velocity has kicked up like five miles an hour since he was um, in the league. And maybe, maybe he's ready to take off. I still don't think he'll be productive over four years of this contract, but maybe two. And that would be enough. I think. The, the point of the change in the approach, Aaron, is I think a great one. And to further that narrative, 
Something that Liam Hendricks has actually himself talked extensively about is that starting in 2019, he began to work with Michael Fisher of Cogify Baseball, which is sort of a private consultant who makes personalized maps for pitchers as to where their pitches are most effective. And I think this change in usage of his fastball can be directly attributed to that. So as he continues to work with this increase in information as to where his pitches are most effective, I think it, it would be sort of wise to beg on him to continue this level of performance. He's actually unlocked using information, a new way to be effective. Yeah. So, you know, good for the White Sox. Let's see how that plays out. The next signing I wanted to get to was Kyle Schwarber for the Nats. So we mentioned that the Nats picked up Josh Bell last week. Um, now they seem like they're really going to give it a shot. They take Schwarber for one year, 10 mil. And I just want to say, what fools the Cubs are. It's not like that Central is, is locked down by any team. And the Cubs have just said, we're going to full send everything. They could have had him for one year, $8 million in arbitration projected. And instead, the Nats go ahead and happily pay him two extra million dollars because it's a great deal. This is a guy who we've seen be an excellent hitter in 2019. And the Nats are going to go out and say, we've seen a lot of good things from this guy. Let's take a flyer on him. And if he sucks, like we weren't supposed to win this year anyway, whatever. Like it didn't cost us anything for our future. Um, so I love this signing for the Nats. I'm wondering if you feel the same way. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I totally agree on your point with the Cubs, which is like, how are you not trying in the NL central? It's a bad division. Right. And then this, the second point I, I like of yours is that like, yeah, this makes sense for the Nats. They're a team that, as you said earlier in the podcast, have clearly fallen behind the, the Mets and Braves as contenders in this NL East. So they might have to make moves on the margins and hope. I, I texted you this when they got Kyle Schwarber right after they got Josh Bell, which is the Nats are trying to catch lightning in a bottle. That's a great way to say they're, it, yeah. They're, they're, they're picking up hitters who are coming off down years, but have a track record of being really good hitters, and they're hoping they can refine that. And as far as Kyle Schwarber goes, I mean – I don't think it's very hard to imagine him refining his form of 2019. I mean, Not at all. he was 95th percentile in the exit velocity last year, 86th percentile in the hard hit rate. He still walks a lot with an 83rd percentile walk rate. He still barrels the ball a lot with a 75% uh, barrel rate. And frankly, he was quite unlucky last year uh, where his XWOBA was really above average in the 66th percentile. And it looked a lot worse. Uh, in terms of his actual results. Mm -hmm. But again, we, we've we've seen this with the Laga Higgers in the small sample size of 2020. And yeah, Kyle Schwarber is not going to be an all-star, I don't think, but he can be a really good hitter. And especially if the National League has a DH, boy, do you love that guy in D at, at the DH. Absolutely. Because like, if you think about the Nats lineup, they're not asking him to do any type of heavy lifting, right? Like they still have... Victor Robles, Trey Turner, Juan Soto. Um, now they have Josh Bell in that lineup as well. Uh, like Jan Gomes is fine as a hitting catcher. Like they have a good team um, and they're just asking him to kind of slot in there. I think that he is like one of the most obvious candidates to reclaim his success. Like he it seems, it seems over his career that he's going to be a bit of a streaky hitter. But what we saw with the Cubs, if we just put the numbers aside, like he came up so hot. 
like he was a top prospect that he came up and he hit those home runs in the world series. And like, it was just all so magical for him. Right. And then he like struggled to reach that level of uh, like acclaim or the greatness that had surrounded him since he kind of broke onto the scene. It's a guy who spent his entire career in the same organization and who definitely does not have the purest swing mechanics in the world. He's definitely not the purest hitter in the world. So when I look at this, I see this as a picture perfect opportunity for a guy to just get away from one system of hitting and look at another and for it to unlock something in him again. It's not a sustainable, super long-term approach, but he is a very obvious guy that any of these years could catch on to what makes him a great hitter because he can obviously be a great hitter before we've seen it and really puts it into application. So I like this um, for the Nats, as I mentioned. The next one is my old guy uh, from Arizona, Archie Bradley, after getting shipped off to Cincinnati Reds, uh, is signed by the Phillies for one year, six mil. And, you know, I've said it once, I'll say it again. If there's one thing the Phillies can do, it's close their eyes and throw cash at relievers who really aren't going to make a huge impact. So while I believe that he is an improvement for their bullpen, um, it's just like, they need to do so much more. Like they needed to go get Liam Hendricks if they were serious about shoring up their bullpen, right? Like this is just another example of them chucking a Band-Aid on what has been truly a fatal wound for the last three years. So good for the Phillies. The price they get them at one year, six mils, about right, I think. Um, but I just can never give the Phillies props for making bullpen moves because it's never enough. Yeah, I mean, I, I largely agree with with your point, which is that, yeah, Archie Bradley is a good reliever and getting him at one year, six million in a vacuum is a good move, but the Phillies were going to get fourth or fifth in the NL East before this move. They're still going to get fourth or fifth in the NL East. Like it doesn't move the needle at all. Exactly. Um, the next one is a pair, actually. I want to present it to you as a pair and they're more relievers. So Houston signs Pedro Baez, previous Dodgers reliever, nicknamed El Caballo, um, for two years, 12 and a half guaranteed with some incentives. And in a corresponding move, seemingly, because these guys occupied very, very similar positions in the Dodgers bullpen last year, the Dodgers signed Blake Trinan for two more years, uh, 17 and a half guaranteed, and an $8 million club option in 2023. Sam, when presented with the option of Pedro Baez at, at uh, basically six and a quarter or Blake Trinan at eight and three quarters a year, who do you want? I'm still taking Blake Trinan. Really? Uh, yeah, because, I, you know, Blake Trinan in 2018, he was Liam Hendricks. He was absolutely incredible that's true 0.78 era 1.8 fip 3.6 war a terrible down 2019 i don't know what happened to him but in 2020 it looked like he had sort of rediscovered some of the form of 2018 he certainly wasn't the same dominant pitcher as he was back then but you know pedro baez has been a consistently good reliever for the dodgers you know i I, I just like the upside of Blake trying a little more in, in the Dodgers bullpen and let, you know, when you're the Dodgers and you're a little more insensitive to cost, I, I, I just prefer the higher upside move. I understand that. And I appreciate it, but I actually prefer the opposite. So 
you say you don't know what happened to Blake Trinan. I know what happened to Blake Trinan. In 2019, or in 2018, I'm sorry, the one-seam fastball he throws, which apparently is impossible to get a feel for, he had a feel for for the season. And it's unhittable when he throws it right. But you look at the rest of his career, and he has a 15% home run to fly ball rate. And that's what he had in 2019 again. And so, yeah, he's maybe back at 10% in 2020 over half a season, but was it going to drop five or raise five in the other half of the season, be back at normal or be back at excellent? I don't know. So for me, this is another reliever who's had one great season, one great season, and has been abysmal for a lot of other seasons and average for one other season. And Pedro Baez is a guy, on the other hand, who, while his numbers don't pop out, there is immeasurable about <laughs> there is immeasurable value in the fact that he's going to consistently top 50 innings, occasionally top 70 innings out of your bullpen. I just it's obviously a possibility for Trinan, who actually has thrown more innings than Pedro Baez somehow over the last uh, four years or so. But I, I don't know. I would take Baez at, at the cost, even even if I was the Dodgers and I said, what's uh, what's two and, and a half annual value to me? But, but I guess the other question is like, was Baez starting to decline last year? Like the strikeout rate went down, the walk rate went up. And like, yeah, I mean, you could say the same thing happened to Trinan, honestly. But with Baez, you know, watching him in the playoffs, he, he looked untrustworthy I guess I wonder if the Dodgers are sort of forecasting a further, a further decline out of him. Yeah. And that's definitely a possibility. I mean, I think it definitely fits the Dodgers um, player evaluation style to say, let's cut bait on this guy who's going to start to decline, even if he hasn't necessarily yet for a guy who has the possibility of improving dramatically, which I think describes the two situations. All right. Um, but yeah, I think these are just interesting moves. And again, these may seem like they're fringy to you guys, but we're giving you what we have. So we can't make Trevor Bauer get signed. We can't make JT Real Muto and George Springer get signed as much as we wish we could. When they do, we're going to be here breaking that for you. But for now, we're talking about the moves around the edges because at the end of the day, these are the moves that win World Series. I actually, reading about Liam Hendricks today, um, realized that he ended the White Sox season last year by striking out um, to end the White Sox season, Nomar Mazzara. And that speaks to what type of game baseball is, because it always seems like people see with a one run game, by the way, it always seems like team seasons end on those guys that you say, oh, he's just a throw in or, oh, like we don't need him to do much this year. And even if it's true at the time, baseball is one on the margins most of the time. So these moves are important um, and we like covering them and we like giving you guys the inside scoop. So with that, uh, we are going to close the chapter on Major League Baseball for this episode. And we are going to, by Sam's requirement, I should say, we are going to evaluate how well we did last week in our NFL picks. Sam, why don't you just get it over with? All right. I mean, so let's just go through each game. Uh, in the first game between the Bills and Colts, we both picked the Bills. The Bills won that game. Uh, 
in the the following what was the following game following game uh we'll just do them in the same order that we had them last week just to make it easy um last week we talked about the saints bears which was the other two seven matchup we both had the saints they both won so we so both we're both two and out. We're, we both were two for two um and we'll see how we do next week so should we move into no, because I think what would give the listeners more information as to how the picking went was to include the final four games, which is... Oh, there were other games. Going. Yeah, there were. So what we had is the Cleveland Browns against the Pittsburgh Steelers. I picked the Cleveland Browns to pull off the upset. Aaron didn't believe in them, but they did, in fact, pull off that upset. <laughs> so the Cleveland Browns moved through. Uh, we both got the the three six matchup wrong in the NFC. We both picked the Seahawks. I, I do just want to say that when I picked them, I said it was a toss up. I yeah. I said okay. I had to leave, but I said that it was a toss up, and I could easily see the Rams winning, which I think is more than a lot of Schmadre out there today. That's all I'm gonna say. I I don't think that counts though, because you didn't pick them to win. Well, and yeah, uh, so we both picked the Seahawks to win that game. So that so that was a miss for both of us. And then in the in the four or five matchups, I had the Ravens, uh, you know, defeating the the Titans. Aaron didn't believe in the Ravens. I, I of course went on a long spiel about how I thought this would be the Ravens uh, postseason. The Ravens did pull that game out, although they didn't do it in a convincing enough fashion mm-hmm. for me to feel like my prediction of the Ravens getting all the way to the Super Bowl is going to come true. That game was like uh, very close. Yeah. Uh, so, so, the, uh, so I, I got that game, Aaron didn't. And then finally, um, what's the last game? The last I'm game missing? was bucks and the Washington football team. We both had the bucks correctly winning. That's right. So, so Sam so at goes the end of the day, five for six, that's not bad kid. Um, I go three for six, which, uh, is easier to divide. So I, I was precisely 50%. And I think at the end of the day, that's the only thing that really matters. Um, just looking forward to next week. Uh, it looks like, you know, the only, I, the two people I had advancing the Packers and the bills are still in this. So I am still in the, uh, Super Bowl hunt, even though I was three for six, of course, uh, I had chiefs Titans and Saints Seahawks, neither of, uh, which are going to play out. So we'll keep you up to date on that. Any last words on the national football league, Sam? No, I mean, just that they're, they're going to be a lot of really good games this, this weekend. I mean, I think Ravens-Bills is going to be an incredible game. And, and a lot of really that. good bets as well. So just so you guys know, starting in the conference finals, we'll be giving you some hot bets that we're really feeling um, previous to the weekend's games. Um, we're not liable for any money loss. We just want to say that off the bat, but if you like, uh, playing some, but we are, we are liable for money one. So if you hit on a big bet that we give you, we are going to request maybe five, 10% of a royalty. (laughs) Yeah. That's how we run our book here. We're not liable on losings, but we are liable on winnings. Um, so stay tuned for that guys. Also, also Tom Brady, Drew Brees. I think this will be the first playoff matchup between the two. That's exciting. Yeah, I guess that stands to reason. Um, it would have been exciting about four years ago, but now we have a guy who, <laughs> you know, could still be in the hospital if he wasn't getting paid so much money. And another guy who like eats stem cells or something for breakfast to like stay as young as he is. 
I I am not at, I guess like from a story perspective, it's nice, but from a football perspective, that's a game that I am not like dying to see. That's the worst game of the weekend, in my opinion. Um, but with that off the cover of Mark, I'm not even going to let Sam respond and I'm immediately going to rush us in to the National <laughs> Basketball Association early reactions. Let's just start with the hottest news off of the hot stove from this week, um, outside of baseball, of course. And that's that James Harden is out of Houston, about 75 pounds heavier than when he came into Houston, (laughs) um, but with a lot more hardware, personal accolades, I should say, to show for it, not a lot of team-based hardware uh, to show for his time in Houston. This was a three-team trade where the Rockets... Four-team. I guess technically a four-team, or if you count the uh, Milwaukee's pick, but it already belonged to the Cavs, right? Well, no. I mean, if, if you count the Pacers getting in with the Rockets at the end. Oh, sorry. The, sorry. No, it's a true four-team trade. I, I apologize. Yeah. I was reading that wrong. It's a true four-team trade. And let's just try and break it down simply. Sam, do you want to try and walk us through it? Because this is a maze. Sure. Let, let me go with each of the four teams. I'm going to say what they lost, what they received. So the Houston Rockets, of course, lost James Harden. They ended up receiving Victor Oladipo from the Pacers, Dante Exum from the Cavs, Rodians, Kuroks from the Nets, three first-rounders from the Nets, 2022, 2024, 2026, an additional first-rounder from the Cavs, although it is Milwaukee's first-rounder in 2022. It is unprotected, but given that it's Milwaukee's first-rounder, you do not expect it to be very high. And they also have the right to swap picks with the Brooklyn Nets in the 2021, 2023, 2025, and 2027 drafts. So what I mean there is if they have a worse pick than the Nets, they can swap their picks. Uh, The Nets, of course, received James Harden. They gave up all the aforementioned picks. They also gave up Karis LeVert, Jared Allen, and Torian Prince. Uh, Karis LeVert and Jared Allen, of course, very good young p- pieces for them. The Indiana Pacers gave up all-star Victor Oladipo, uh, who ended up coming back to Houston. They did get, though, Karis LeVert and a second-round pick from Cleveland. Uh, and then the Cavs gave up Dante Exum, the Milwaukee Bucks 2022 first-round pick, the second-round pick, and they got in return Jared Allen and Torian Prince. Um, so before we so, go into this, Sam, I, I do just need to say one thing. And that's just so that all of our listeners in Latvia don't feel like we're uncultured swine who can't uh, pronounce your country's uh, common names. We do know that uh, his name is Rodion's Kurutz. So um, it doesn't seem like that could possibly be his name based on the spelling, but I assure you that it is. Um, and, uh, we appreciate him and all other Latvian born NBA players. We're big fans of, uh, of Latvians in the NBA. So please continue. Sam. Uh, well, I'm not a big fan of Christoph Porzingis. Okay. So with that, I just want to <laughs> pull you really quickly. Obviously Harden is the big ticket and let's get to him in a second, but who outside of the nets do you feel like does the best here? So like not including Houston, which I'll talk, which which we'll talk about in a second. I really like what the Cavs got out of this trade. Yeah, me too. Which is that they gave up the Milwaukee 
first, which, you know, at the end of the day, that's going to be like 28th or later. Uh, and they got like Jared Allen, who is he, I mean, he's not an all-star, but he's a really good player. Like, but wait, you might say, what about Dante Exum? And to that, I answered Dante Exum's career points per game is 5.7. His career high is 8.1 in 2017 and 18. This is a guy who's rebounding the ball 1.8 times a game, assisting it 2.1 times a game. I honestly am not sure why he's in the NBA. Like he can play defense, but Dante Exum is not a loss. I don't believe. I don't know where he fits into the Rockets. And then the other thing I, I like, and you might disagree is that I, I actually like what the Pacers got out of this. And that's turning in an expiring Victor Oladipo contract. And Oladipo is a great player. I mean, he's a former all-star. He hasn't been the same player he was before his injury, but it seemed like he was maybe getting back to that in the early part of the season. So I'm not, I'm not shitting on Victor Oladipo. He's a really good player, but Karis Levert is a really good young player and they got him in return for Oladipo's expiring contract. I think that's the key point here. Oladipo only on, on, on their books for the rest of the season and and Karis Levert, a guy who, when he's been healthy has been a tremendously good player. I mean, like you couldn't even necessarily convince me that Oladipo first year back from the injury last year has, was better than Karis Levert's been when he's been healthy. Like Karis Levert's really good. Yeah. And I understand that and you're not wrong, but to me, like, I think you have to look at where you're at as the Pacers right now and say, are we going to take a shot for the East this season? Because like Karis Levert has been good. Like last year he averaged 22.8 points a game. That's really good. Um, You know, was he super efficient? No. Was he disgusting? No. He just like had kind of high volume last year and was able to make the most of it. He's not going to bring the ball down all that much for five rebounds a game, five assists a game. So it's not good. It's not bad at all. Um, He's a good player. No question. But Oladipo like has shown that he is one of the very few people in the NBA who could ever be in an MVP conversation, right? Like he wasn't a serious contender necessarily in 2018, but he showed us that he has the ability to reach that level. Um, and so the question for the Pacers is, are you going to compete right now? You know, they're sitting in fourth place in, a, in the East, which is always like garbage. And they're looking at really good performances from Miles Turner. Oladipo's playing fairly well at the moment. So I don't know. Sabonis has looked really good. Yeah, Sabonis is a god. And I don't, so I don't know. I don't mind it, but I'm certainly not thrilled with the Pacers decision here. If I'm a Pacer. I will, I will also add on the topic of Sabonis that he he uh, contributed to one of the all time great Walt Clyde Frazier announcing lines where earlier this season, when the Knicks were playing the Pacers, Sabonis was getting Mitch Robinson and Nerlens Noel into foul trouble. And the great Walt Clyde Frazier said, uh, Sabonis is committing genocide on the Knicks centers right now. <laughs> well, thank you for bringing that up. That's an important piece of information. Um, but with that, why don't we talk about Harden and the Rockets? Um, so we talked about the auxiliary teams. I'm going to just tell you really quickly what I think here. I think that, it's a 
I think that the Rockets walk away as obvious winners here. I mean, they're getting three first rounders who might not be great because they just traded one of the best players on the planet to the team who they're taking the first rounders from. Um, but they're still first rounders and they get four swaps. One of which is definitely in a year that could be useful for the Rockets. Um, I, there's, and they get the first rounder from Milwaukee, even though it's late in the draft, it's not the ability to go out and get another Harden that they got here, but it is the ability to build up basically a full roster of good players from the draft and only need to sign one guy. So they put themselves in a tremendous position to compete in the future because we know that ownership will pay for players. They just needed to take a step back here, get away from Harden, who very clearly they were not going to win with. Like I, we've, we've hashed this out so many times and yes, they were one quarter of basketball away from actually winning with him, blah, blah, blah. But they, it wasn't going to happen from here on out. He was getting intractable as a player to manage. He was managing to add a gazillion pounds to his weight, which like I'm not shaming <laughs> him for his body, but I am curious what he's doing as a professional athlete in the middle of his season, like acting nonchalantly and looking like he's not ready to play his profession. Um, but on the other hand, as the Nets, you have to go do this as well. You're able to keep two of the 10 best players. Well, I don't know where Kyrie fits, yeah. but definitely a top two of now you have two of the top three players in basketball, right? Unless you want to argue Luca, but like basically two, two of the top five, two, five, of, the top two five. of the top five. And like your team is super scary, right? You're arguably the odds on favorite to win the NBA. Now, Kevin Durant, uh, maybe it's not his fault, but it probably is that he has now gone to another situation where his team is just unfairly stacked against the rest of the league. Um, <laughs> I can even think about that dimension. Oh, I mean, he's, he's yeah. the biggest cupcake in the NBA. He can't play on his own floor. He must share it with superstars. The question that remains is will Kyrie even finish the season as an NBA player? Um, he's all over the board. The Nets, the Nets to me, if I had the ability to like short them in the betting market, I would love to take that because they're going to implode. They may not beat a team like the Celtics or whoever in the Eastern conference finals, because they're just standing on the court screaming at each other potentially. Yeah. So, I mean, let's, let's talk about it. So from the Nets perspective, like you said, I think it's a trade you have to make when you already have Durant, when you already have Kyrie, like they become, I think, instant sort of co-title favorites with the Lakers. Yeah. Uh, but let's also talk about the fit. They now have three of maybe like the 10 highest usage players in the league on one team. They maybe have now three of the five biggest lunatics in the NBA on one team. Yeah. So it's like... How is the locker room going to work? I mean, and by the way, they all play the front court. There's no diversity in skill, really. They're all ball handler. I guess that's your point of usage, but they're all ball handlers and shooters. There is no diversity in skill, really. Yeah, I I mean, I think Durant can probably play off ball. Like he he proved with the Warriors, he can play off ball really well. Um, But but, playing off ball is shooting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, You know, I think maybe Harden is not quite the defensive player that you hope when you already have Kyrie and, and Durant offensively. Uh, Although Kyrie and Durant are both very good defensive players for their offensive prowess. 
Yeah, Durant especially. Um, Kyrie's a very good on-ball lo- defender, or was when yeah. he was involved in yeah. the game. He's a little bit gone now, but you you lose you lose Levert and and Jared Allen, who are key parts of your defensive rotation, um, and keep, just key parts of your team. But but I, you know, a, a big, and I mean, basically, what you've done is you have gone all in. If the Nets don't win a championship in the next two, maybe three years this is going to be an unmitigated disaster because they've now mortgaged their entire future for mm-hmm. this. I agree. Um, but, you know, I, I think an interesting dimension here is like, is Kyrie Irving even part of this team? That's what I was asking. Like, I don't know. Like he hasn't played for a while. We have no idea why he hasn't played. He, like, does his team even know why he's not playing? He went to his, his sister's, 30th birthday party like a massive party with no masks he while he was sitting out for personal reasons the other night he was hanging out on a brooklyn community phone call under the conspicuous nickname of kai irving like like this man is the weirdest human on earth like Stephen a smith called for him to retire the other day and it's like like are the nets even better off with kyrie irving coming back like this guy is, is a lunatic. Like, how can you, how can you be in the same room as him? Like it makes uh, it like tough. On the same team. And to give perspective, I know that almost all of our listeners are sports fans, but like a perspective that people often miss is that when you're, when Sam is saying, and when people on television are saying like, this guy's a lunatic, like how can people handle this? It's because everybody else on the team is supposedly I don't know with Harden, but for the most part, professional players are pouring their heart and soul into the game, right? Like they are, they are putting in so much physical exertion on a day-to-day basis to get better, to be better with their team. And so for you to do that all the time and to see a teammate shirk his responsibilities, still get paid, still look like one of the like top players on the team, take the glory and just seem to take no responsibility for the way that his actions are affecting the rest of his teammates. That's the frustrating part. Right. That's the part that the players in the locker room grow to resent you for. And then you're on the floor with a guy that you really don't like, not the on a personal level, but a guy that is offending you in the action that you're doing right now. It's not that maybe he's a jerk off the court and then you get on the court and you're like, all right, well, we're playing basketball, which I think I think that kind of describes how Shaq and Kobe were when they played together. Right. Like they didn't really like each other personally, but they figured it out. This is a guy who the thing that bothers you about him is the way he goes about playing basketball, the way he goes about being on the floor. It's a very, very toxic situation. Yeah. And and there's no question that Kyrie is a transcendent basketball talent. I mean, he's maybe one of the, he's maybe the greatest ball handler to ever play the game. Agreed. He's a tremendous shooter. When he's on the floor, he's a tremendous player, but he's not on the floor right now. And honestly, it's starting to become a thing. And who knows if it's random noise, but it is a thing that two years ago, the Celtics were a better team when he was not on the floor. Last year, the Nets were a better team when he was not on the floor. And it's like, okay, maybe it's random noise because Kyrie Irving's a really good basketball player, but like it's becoming a thing and he's tearing apart every locker room he's a part of. I mean, like I know Durant wanted to go and play with this guy. But it's like he's great. It's already obvious he's like grading on Steve Nash, who's like maybe the greatest people person, greatest teammate. Like yeah, he's like the, the least offendable years. person in the world, right? 
it's just like this guy is he tears apart he sets fire to everything he touches yeah like no, I, it's I insane agree. um so but yeah. but i think even even if Kyrie doesn't play a minute the rest of the season the combination of hargan and durant makes this the favorites in the east yeah agreed there's just no other team that i how can you not score on a possession where you have the option of both harden and durant right like it's and there's some other players around there too but they are they are a very formidable team and we'll have to see how it goes so we are we are running one the one other point i want to make which is that if you're the rockets you got all these first round picks the question is, first of all, what are these first round picks going to be? Because if the Nets continue to be good, they're going to be in the late 20s. And it doesn't feel like you got a lot. But, you know, Durant, Hargan, like Kyrie, like they could not be on the Nets in two or three years. Like who knows with, with these guys. And like maybe those picks end up being really valuable. But the, the question I just want to ask you is that there was reportedly an offer on the table from Philadelphia, from the Philadelphia, Philadelphia 76ers to reunite James Harden with Daryl Morey. The package was reportedly centered around Ben Simmons. Would you have preferred that package if you're the Rockets to this one? So I, I kind of, I kind of brought this up on Twitter to a friend of mine who's a sports reporter in uh, Albany over the weekend he made a glib tweet about how if it were me, I personally um, would not be shopping my 24-year-old all-NBA superstar for um, a 30-year-old ball-dominant point guard or something to that effect. And while I don't necessarily disagree from the Sixers' perspective, because I can imagine it would have been Simmons and also a a number of first-round picks, which like is pretty tough for Philly. And I still don't think puts them in a position to win. Um, while, so while I generally agree, my thing about Ben Simmons is that there's no question. He is an uber talented, so good basketball player. The problem is the modern NBA is not built for his skill set, right? He is a drive and score or drive and pass point guard who does not protect the ball particularly well, partly due to his size. He plays good defense and he's a flexible defender. But I'd say he's not just playing good defense though. I think he is an elite defender. I could see him winning defensive player of the year. I would be surprised to see him win defensive player of the year because while his blocks certainly show up in the um, scorecard, when you watch him play, he actually doesn't play out a fair number of defensive possessions. So he, again, this, this just goes to speak to it though. He is uber talented. He's this massive point guard who has incredible ball skills and has unbelievable court vision. He has elite, elite court vision, but what he does does not translate super well into the modern game. And so for me, if I'm the Rockets, I'd rather have seven of effectively four independent and four swaps uh, in picks so that over the next four years, I have eight first round picks as the Rockets. I would rather have that um, with the chance of re-signing Oladipo than taking on Ben Simmons and maybe getting two first round picks. Fair enough. Fair enough. I, I think I would have rather taken a swing and gotten 
Simmons in the deal just because like the NBA is such a star league that like I'd rather get a star. But that's my uh, point is he's not. He's a star by name only. He does not play like a real star. He does not control that, basketball games. He does not put teams on enough. his back. That's fair enough. And I mean, you, you could view him as a guy who's just going to disappear in a playoff series when you can scheme around his complete lack of an outside shot. But I view him as a guy who can, who can be really good without that shot and who is like a defensive ace that can get a stop in a big possession every time. Um, but yeah, I mean, I certainly see why you would also take the the Nets package instead. And it's going to be a weird now for Maury to try to talk Simmons off the ledge of like, why were you going to trade me? Yeah. Um, Yikes. Yeah. But, that's a, well, he did just get there though. Um, yeah. So let's take like five minutes or so here, Sam, to close the episode out, to just talk about some things going on in the NBA um, or some teams that we like, really whatever's on your mind. I'm sure you may want to say a quick piece about the Knicks. I certainly want to get something about the Suns in. And then maybe anyone else who's caught your eye. Sure. Let me just give you my thoughts on the Knicks. You know, I have to get it out. At the time of our last podcast, I was excited to talk about the Knicks. They're on a win streak. I think the day after we we pushed the NBA off to the next episode, I'm like, I'm getting excited. I'm like, I'm going to be able to talk about how good the Knicks are. They'd won five of six. And since then they've lost four in a row. They've looked pretty non-competitive in some of these games. Here's what I'll say. The offense continues to be disastrous. I'm very worried about RJ Barrett's efficiency, Um, but they look like a professional basketball team this year, which is different than they have been in the past. And I was like kind of critical of the, of the tip tire on this podcast. I mean, they look like a well-coached basketball team. I I agree. I said some mean things about Tib, and I I agree with you as well. Yeah. Tibbs looks like he's doing a decent job of building a culture there. They're, this is the best defense I think they've played in like a decade. Like they're, they're one of the better defensive teams in the league so far this year. Offensively, they're totally putrid. They have no shooting, but part of that is that Alec Burks who provides some of their shooting has been hurt. Obi Toppin, their first round picks been hurt. Like they've had some injuries. Um, Austin rivers has looked awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, yeah, th- some of the initial optimism about the Knicks that Knicks fans had, I think has been tempered by the last few games where they've really come down to earth, but it's fun to at least watch like, and this is such a low bar, but it's a bar that the Knicks have really lowered themselves to. It's fun to watch a team that looks like a professional basketball team for once. Right. Um, I, I definitely understand that. And so on my end, I mean, I'm looking at the Suns and I'm, they also started a little bit hotter than they've been. Um, you know, they lost a game to, someone who wasn't great. They lost a game to the Pistons in OT the other day. And then the wizards, the Pistons are one of the worst teams in basketball right now. So they've dropped a couple tough ones, but they've also won a couple good ones. You know, they beat the nuggets who've been not great so far, but are still a good team. They've stayed in it with the blazers. The Suns look really good. It looks like Chris Paul, Devin Booker and Deandre Ayton. I'll say it over and over again, are finding a way to come together and play good basketball. And, and, and McCall Bridges looks like a really good yes. young player. And McCall Bridges, like, which I, I have said in the past, he has all the makings of being somebody who not only will eventually be a quite a good NBA player, I'm, I think Robert Covington level, 
but also immediately can make an impact because his defense scaled perfectly. He is a very, very good defender. And he's, and he's a great three point shooter. I mean, yeah. he's shooting like 45% from three yeah. right now, like on, on pretty good volume on like six attempts a game. So like that, that defense and three combination is like, that's perfect for the modern NBA. That's perfect for the modern NBA, especially on a team where you already have three very, very good players. Um, so I love what the Suns are doing. I'm excited. I see them as, uh, it's so early to say if this is going to come back to bite me, but I see them as shoe-ins in the playoffs. I see them taking a six or a seven seed, like relatively simply um, in the West, depending on how the rest of the season shakes out. Um, and so I'm super excited to see that. On the flip side, a couple teams that have really caught my eye, the Warriors, despite being six and five, are really a bad team. Um, but to Sam's point, and as we mentioned last time, it has been amazing to watch Russ just go, uh, not Russ, to, to, to watch Curry just absolutely go off on the last few games. Um, I expect them to compete for that last seed, like everybody does in the West, but they're not a very good team. Um, and then the other team that I'm totally lost on is the Raptors. The Raptors are two and eight and haven't even looked good. Um, and I wonder though, if they're not good. Maybe the thing is they are two and eight, but they're only like th- their points per game. Their point differential per game is only minus 1.4. So they do appear to be getting extremely unlucky from that perspective. You know, I don't, you know, are the rap. It does look like maybe they're not going to be quite the team they were last year. I think losing Ibaka seems to be hurting them a lot. Which is surprising, but I agree. Yeah. Siakam seems to like, you know, people were hopeful that he could really take another step this year. It doesn't quite seem like he's doing that yet. I still think the Raptors are going to find a way into the playoffs in the East. And I don't think anyone's going to want to face them in the playoffs in the East. If, if you're a top seed, like they're not going to be a fun out in the first round. Yeah, I certainly don't disagree, but I will just mention like, I, you know, I always, all I do is trash the East. When you look at the East this year, actually, like they're not that bad. Celtics, Bucks, Sixers, Nets make up the top four and then Pacers, Raptors, Heat, Hornets, Hawks, Magic are all Knicks, I guess, are all like decent teams. I'll tell you who's looked really impressive. LaMelo Ball. LaMelo Ball has looks really good. I have said some awful things about LaMelo Ball um, on this podcast, actually. And while I'm not necessarily going to apologize for giving my honest assessment of a situation at a time, um, it appears that so far I will be eating my words for breakfast, lunch, and dinner for the next, I don't know, 11 years, because he has looked really good, really quickly in the NBA, better than his brother ever has. Oh, for sure. For By sure. a long way. And, and I'll, but I will say the NBA season has been kind of weird so far. Like there've been a lot of weird blowouts. Um, I don't think there's any team that I like have totally had my opinion changed on the Lakers still look really good. I'd like to see the Clippers show a bit more having them blow that big lead against the, the warriors was just like, can they just not like, if they get punched, can they not punch back? No, they, they just suck. Like the Clippers are just not really that good team. You know, I will say though, like Paul George is playing like the guy he was, you know, before he became playoff P you're right. Um, 
Although he'll still be playoff P in the playoffs. Don't forget. <laughs> we'll, we'll see. Uh, Jokic, who I told you all was my favorite MVP bet, seems to have taken another step. Like, yeah. this guy is so freaking good. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I still think the Lakers are the favorites. I think the Nets have just catapulted themselves into that category. I have no reason to think yet that the Bucks aren't going to continue to roll their way through the regular season in the East, but I still have the question of what's going to happen in the playoffs. The Sixers have looked, the Sixers have looked pretty good. Um, it would have been really interesting if they got Harden. I'll tell you that. Yeah. Um, some of the, the Cavs have been better than expected. They've, they've, somewhat miraculously been playing really good defense colin sexton looks like looks really a good. good young piece there mm-hmm. uh scoring pretty efficiently um bradley beal just needs to get off the wizards because that dude is so good and i want to see him on a contender yeah me as well and honestly there's a lot of teams that could use him right now but it's great to have the NBA in full swing. Uh, it's great to be in the middle of the NFL playoffs. We're looking forward to pitchers and catchers reporting in just about two months and a handful of days now. Um, I guess no, less, less, less than a less than two months, like a month, right? Pitchers and catchers, like middle of March, middle of February. Mm, well, that would be even better. Let's let's just tell you guys really quick what day pitchers and catchers are actually going to report in 2020. And that answer is the middle of February first workout the week of February 13th. So uh, we are about a month away now from that and it is heating up. So stay with us guys. We'll be staying with the NBA. We'll be staying with the NFL through the Super Bowl, bringing you some bets starting uh, probably next week. And uh, we're looking forward to it. Again, if there's anything you'd like to hear from us, uh, hear us expand upon, hear our expertise or knowledge or lack thereof in, please reach out to us at the Alonzo Bet on twitter.com and the Alonzo Bet at gmail.com. Um, Aaron, let me ask you one thing before we get off. If you could give our listeners just a little prediction, what is just your gut right away? What's the next big move in the MLB you see happening? Great question, Sam. I think that, oh boy, that's tough. I think that Springer is the next domino to fall. I think there's, the market is clearest for him because there were other starters, there were other, um, or sorry, there were other outfielders taken already. While there were other starters taken already, I think Trevor Bauer wants to be the last guy on the market. I think that's part of Rachel Lubba's like strategy for him. Um, and there's no catchers taken. So nobody really understands, I guess, um, McCann. But like, I don't think people really have a gauge on what Real Muto's realistic price is. I think there is a very clear picture of, of Springer and it's just a matter of people coming to terms. So if I had to guess, barring some type of unforeseen amazing trade, which is totally possible with all the rumors flying, uh, my guess would be George Springer. So what team? The Angels. The Angels. Yep. Whoa. I think it's going to be the Blue Jays. I think the Met. I think he's going to be a little rich for the Mets' blood if they get that Lindor extension. That's a good point. Um, I um, could. I could certainly see him. I Blue Jays are obviously more yeah. likely since that's a reported team. But 
you asked me the question and some my I had some type of sensor go off in my body that well, said the Anaheim Angels. If they're no longer the Anaheim Angels, they're the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. But uh not in my world, well, they're not. You should you should find the odds on that and bet it if it's just a little gut gut feeling. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if they have George Springer odds, but if they do, I'll definitely hit it. All right. Well, well, thank you for that prediction, Aaron. But with with that, a reminder of all the incredible plugs that Aaron just gave you guys. But with that, <laughs> let's let's sign off tonight. Signing off from the Alonzo Bet. I'm Sam. And I'm Aaron. Thanks for coming, folks. Thank you.